If you're listening online, we are in Psalm chapter 1. We're in our, here we're going to read all six verses together. Perhaps you might want to read along with us. Here we go together. Psalm 1, 1. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. May the Lord's blessing to the reading of his word. It was Charles Spurgeon who said, there are but two denominations in the world, the church and the world, the church and the world. And so there are but two types of people. There are the godly and the ungodly. This really sets the stage. Again, it's nicknamed the Psalm of Psalms. It is the quintessence of Christianity. Blessed is the man that does these three things, especially in verse word. They really are called orphan psalms. I've never heard it before, but what that means was in the Old Testament time, no one knew who wrote them. New Testament time, uh, Psalm 2 has been attributed to David, Acts chapter 4, verse 25. But the entire Old Testament uh, period, who wrote them was God. And so today, even Psalm 1, who wrote that? I think it's quite, quite impressive. It's God. All we know is God wrote it, and God did. And so what a wonderful psalm it is. You perhaps have it memorized. Ron Hamilton has set it to music. Someone else put that to a choral piece that we sang several times in, in New Jersey. But at least, now there's a contrast here. Several. Uh, psalm 1 is emotional. 2 is intellectual. Uh, uh, paraphrase really is, Oh, the happiness of the man who delights in the law of God. That's emotional. Psalm 2 is intellectual. It starts with why. Psalm 1 begins the blessing, ends in a curse. And Psalm 2 starts with a curse and ends in a blessing. Psalm 1 is essentially a psalm of Christ. Psalm 2, really about the Antichrist in many regards. Psalm 1's meditation for the godly. And Psalm 2 is meditation of the ungodly. I like this. Uh, Sir Richard Baker said, Where the word blessed is hung out as a sign, we may be sure to, we find a godly man within. You know, they used to hang signs out the door like, uh, 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 Terrible gardener, that was over my, over my garage. Terrible gardener. If you put out a sign, blessed, you're going to find a godly man inside. Happy is that. So, number one is a godly man. Interesting, John Philip says that he had to take music lessons all his life, a young life. But he says, the only thing I remember, he says, is uh, where Middle C was. He says, everything flows up. And if you've taken piano lessons, everything flows up from Middle C up or Middle C down. If you would, uh, does it start alphabet and music starts A, B, C, D, E, F, G, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Matter of fact, A440 is where we tune pianos from. It means that sound vibrates 440 times per second. That's 440 times per second. That's vibrating. 440 hertz. Uh, it used to be. 439, like maybe it must have been like G right before it, but they because that's a prime number, they went to A440. And so that's where you tune from, the A440. All instruments tune from that. 
But God does not start with middle C. He starts on a very high note. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. Matter of fact, the word happy there, colloquially, number three, we might the colloquial teaching uh, rendering of blessed will be happy, happy. It's Why do I say happy, happy? Because it's plural. In the Hebrew language, not singular, but plural. So the blessedness is of the man. So it's not just simply happy, but the blessedness is the testimonies of how God has worked in your life and what he's done and given and supplied. Happy, happy is the man or the whole, all oh, the happiness of the man. So God has poured out his blessings upon us. Number one, his path, he is separated from the world. Blessed is the man that walketh not. Modern psychology tends to emphasize the positive. God for us here begins by emphasizing the negative. The happy is the man that's marked by those things he does not do, the places he does not go, the books he does not read, the things he does not watch, the company he does not keep. A strange way to begin, but sometimes we need to hear the negatives. You are not to do that. You are. You will not do that. You will not do this, and you will not. I had some of those at home. Not a lot of them, but I knew my mom and dad said, no, 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 and don't, don't be doing that. You will not stay out past 11 o'clock. Do not do that. So I still remember the night. I went to that, the Wildcats game, got home at 1.30 in the morning. My mom was sitting in the living room waiting for me to come in the door. Woo! The good thing was I, she was so worried that she didn't punish me much. <laughs> but I still felt bad when I walked there because my mom goes to bed at 9 o'clock, 9.30. But she was waiting up for me to come home. I uh, did not have the cell phone to call back in 1978. We did not have cell phones or cell phones to call people. Back to my back off that rabbit trail, back onto the main line. So God begins his book, not this book, not with the power of positive thinking, but with, with which we're not supposed to be doing. In other words, if you're going to be happy, don't be doing these things for the Christian. It's going to be counterproductive for us to get so involved with the world. It just does not work. The happy that the, the walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. First of all, so listen. He does not listen to the ungodly man. I read of an illustration of a Christian man who was involved in a car accident, and it was clearly his fault, and he had considerable damage to the other person's car. And the attending police officer wrote a citation uh, to, to summons the guy to court, so he arrives in court. But this guy hired a very unscrupulous lawyer, and the lawyer worked over and over, and the cleric the, uh, had met the wrong date. On the, on the thing. And so he says, Mr. So-and-so, uh, are you the officer at this accident? Yes, I was. When did it happen? Or where did it happen? Corner of Winchester Avenue and 16th Street, Ashton, Kentucky. I just made that part up. But you wrote out a citation. What's the date on the citation? And the secretary had mistakenly written April 24th. And he's April 24th, 5.30 p.m. And the lawyer immediately says, Your Honor, my client, which is, a, you know, who's the one who caused the accident, was not even in the country, so it couldn't have been him. And case dismissed. So the judge says that, and the Christian man, the man who professes Christ, because of an accidental clerical error, he's absolutely guilty. The officer knows he's guilty. The injured party knows he's guilty. Everybody knows he's guilty. He gets off the hook because of that. Many would say, wow, very clever indeed. Counsel of the ungodly. But how about the next day, the man goes out visiting with his church, and he knocks on the door, and it's that policeman's door. Oh, I know. You're the guy who got off by that technicality. When you know, you know better. You, yeah, but you got, and you're wanting to invite, you wanted me to invite you to your church. You want me to come to your church and other people just like you there as well? It's, we have to so the question, do you think it's important 
for the Christian to live Christ-like in our dealings with the world. Absolutely it is. It really is important. Uh, where I'm working now, uh, I'll be doing a lot of trips. I've already made it clear, and everybody's been very supportive. I said, I do not ride with a single lady alone. I'll follow you. I'll follow you my own car. My expense is fine, but for just one of us, I'll go be on my own. I'm fine with that. And so I think, so, so perhaps they would see me the next day riding up and down with a, with a foreign woman. Some up, I said, wow, what kind of testimony is that? You won't do it in our work. But see, you've got to be careful, and it's important for us to maintain. Obviously, it's not for everyone to do that regarding men and women together alone in the car, but for us is what my wife and I have uh, agreed to do. By the way, Billy Graham never heard one iota of impropriety with women because he had that very rule. Never, ever, ever alone in a car by himself with a person of the opposite sex. And we never heard one time. Billy Graham was, see, never heard it once. So he does not listen to the ungodly man. He does not linger with the sinful man, standeth not in the way of sinners. Page 2. Now, there's nothing wrong with being friendly. I think we should be friendly with lost uh, men and women. We should be that. Jesus was. He made friends with all kinds of people, but he did not do so in order. uh, But he did that in order to lead them to a holier, higher way of life. It's not to compromise in the world to its its lifestyle, its habits, its thinking. We're not to be doing that. Yes, we are to have a relationship with them. If we don't invite them to church, who's going to? If we don't have a testimony in front of them, who is going to do that? It's up to us. So, yes, we are to be friends, but not to... In the world, but not of the world. I guess we might say that. I think the Bible puts it that way. A friend of sinners. They even called him that in a derogatory way. But Jesus had the love and compassion to bring them up out of their sin was his purpose. Think about this. Give three men in the Bible who stood in the way of sinners. And it was a, really a back eye, if you would, on Jehovah, on God. I'll give you one. Abraham, when he lied about Sarah... Said she's my sister. Well, she was, but it was wrong, and he got in trouble, and, and etc. So he stood in the way of sinners. Told Pharaoh. So anybody else? Lot. Lot. Did he not do that? Yes, Lot. He was sitting in the seat of Sodom. I tell you, it's a bad place to be if you are a child of God. Yes, you say, Pat. We know he was saved because it says he's righteous. Lot, New Testament. Peter. Was Peter not standing in the way of sinners around the fire when he should have been praying or kneeling or supporting Jesus or something? Like that? Yes. How about Isaac? Isaac and Rebecca? Yes. There's this, it just wasn't right. It was, a, it was wrong spiritually and spiritually for them to do those kind of things. And so they don't do that. The, the man, blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor thirdly, sitteth in the seat of the scornful. So he doesn't listen to the ungodly, linger with the sinful man, or laugh with the scornful man at your blank. Number three, laugh. Does not laugh. He finds no rest in the atheist's scoffing. Phillips notes that, note the progression and wickedness, the ungodly, the sinner, the scornful, and the corresponding progression in backsliding, walking, standing, sitting. It's you start walking by, and then you're stopping, and now you're stopping and staying. So Lot saw, Lot pitched, Lot was in the city, Lot was in the gate, Lot wouldn't leave. It doesn't start. Can you imagine when he was talking with Abraham, he thought down the road, you know, if you take this one decision, you'll be sitting in Sodom and Gomorrah and you'll be sitting at the gate and you will offer your own daughters to the heinous men there rather than the angels. 
Oh, I would never do that, Abraham. And we know that conversation didn't happen, but but I mean, did you see how the small decisions we make? What the Psalms called the seat of the scornful referred to what we might say is the chair of the scornful. The professor's chair, we might say today, or Abraham would speak of, of the seat. The scribes sit in the Moses' seat as, the, as they were professors of the law. The happy, happy man avoids the seat of the scornful. He avoids the classroom of the atheists and humanists who delight to shred their faith to pieces. I was reading just this week uh, about, and, and it, was in the, uh, it was in The Guardian in London, the excerpt from Evolutionists Admit, from the Evolution News and Science Today, in an article in The Guardian from London, July 1st, 2022, the public processes, the, the failures of evolutionary theory is like, was like a massive Facebook dump, if you would, and just a little bit quoting, scandalous admissions, quoting now, strange as it sounds, scientists still do not know the answers to some of the most basic questions about how life on Earth evolved. Take the eyes, for instance. Where do they come from exactly? The usual explanation of how we got these stupendously complex organs rests upon the theory of natural selection. This is the basic story of evolution as recounted in countless textbooks and pop science bestsellers. The problem, according to a growing number of scientists, is that it is absurdly crude and misleading. For one thing, it starts midway through the story, taking for granted the existence of light-sensitive cells, lens, and irises without explaining where they came from. Bottom line is this, this is... Uh, if we cannot explain things with the tools we have right now, says the Yale University biologist, Mr. Wagner, we must find a new ways of explaining. So the article is called, Do We Need a New Theory of Evolution? And then he answered was, yes, we need a new theory of evolution because it doesn't work. It still doesn't work, never will work. And so do not be sitting in the seat of the scornful. How many young people have gone to a Christian university and been told that, that, the, that there's so many gross errors, the Bible's not divinely inspired, Christ is not God, and you can write all these things off as nonsense, there were no miracles, there's no virgin birth, etc. And they come home more ready for Marxism than to be a minister. How many seminaries today do not teach the truth of God's word? As it is, very few would hold today to a six-day literal creation week. Very, very, very few. Christian, not talking about Christian universities, very few would hold to that. His path, his pleasure, verse 2, he's satisfied with the word. God's word has captured his full attention. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law does he meditate day and night. Meditation is like choose the cud and gets the sweetness and the nutritive virtue of the word into the heart and life. He, when's the last time we chew the cud on the word of God? Like, wow, what does that mean? And Mr. Ball and I have been texting just today about the word destroyer in Exodus 12, 23. What is the destroyer that's going to take care of all the Egyptian firstborn this coming Sunday night when we talk about that? What is that word destroyer? So we've been chewing on that just a little bit. I got him some, I got him some stuff, information I had, and, and emailed it over to him. He has a, this, this has a different counselor than the ungodly, a different company than the sinful man, and a different cause than the scornful man. So it captures his full attention, affection, claimed his full attention. He is meditating on it day and night. Now, this is not the so-called transcendental meditation that we're used to empty yourself of this and put your fingers like that. And I don't know if I can even cross my legs. I'm not going to do it, so don't worry. Put your fingers like this and just open up your... No, bad plan. Focus on God's word, meditate upon that. How many people have become demonically op- 
possessed or oppressed or guided through opening themselves up with this, whoever you are, come and fill. Don't be doing that. We are to be meditating. If you would, and you're outlining, the meditation the psalmist advocates deliberately engages the conscious mind of the truths of God's word. Even consider kundalini yoga. What does that really involve? A lot of churches now even have Christian yoga in their churches. Beware, be careful with that. We come to God's presence, open Bible in hand, speak, Lord, thy servant heareth. That's how we're to do it. But then we read the word of God, methodical, meaningful, meditating ways to understand appropriate truth. And here's some questions. Now, tonight, when you're done, take your little your outline there if you want and tear off that half sheet and then put maybe put that in your Bible. There are like seven great questions as you're reading God's word. Is there a sin for me to, to avoid? Is there a promise for me to claim? A victory to gain? A blessing to enjoy? Is there new truth I've never seen before about God or Christ or the Holy Ghost? Is there any new truth I've never seen about man or sin, etc.? Then and the last, what is the main thing I can learn here? And have a notebook ready and a pen ready. And that's how we remember things often is writing them down. Why, why do you leave notes? Why do I have up here, the Lord is in his holy temple, all the earth keeps out. So we remember to do that when whoever's leading the singing. So I would challenge you, be more proactive uh, it's so easy just to wade through and read your verses for, for the day. And all of us have to struggle with that. Uh, we, focusing on what, if you read early in the morning like I do, you have to focus, you have to stay focused. The path, the pleasure, his prosperity, he is situated by the rivers of waters. By the waters. A tree planted. And I have some peas for you. Maybe you want to jot them down real quickly. There's the prominence. He's like a tree. His permanence, he's planted, unlike the grass which is mowed down and, and harvested and burned, he is planted there. The redwood tree I was reading today uh, is about, doesn't go that deep, the roots don't, maybe 12 feet, but it goes out 50 feet all the way around. That's why the redwood tree and it then interacts with the other trees around it. So that's why they are, have lasted so long being so big and tall, etc., the, his position, he's by the rivers of waters. The droughts which bring bleakness and barrenness to others do not affect him. Interesting. Uh, so that even if, one, he would, uh, even if one river fails, he has the plurality of them, the rivers of waters. His productivity, it brings forth fruits. The godly man, question six, is the godly man a fruit-bearing man? Yes, he's a fruit-bearing man. His propriety in his season. He's not a freak. There are times for fruit bearing as, as just there are times for growth. There's time for rest. There are time for those. He may not be able to raise 12 pound head cabbage, but he does so in the right time. And when it's the right place, he, he, in his season, he is ready. You don't need to worry about the fruit unless you live at 603 Heberland Road in Wortland. Then you may better start looking elsewhere for your food. His pro- perpetuity, his leaf does not wither. We're to be like the evergreens. His prosperity, whatever he does shall prosper. Everything in his life, it's, it's the godly man. Doesn't mean his life is easy, but it means in eternal things. He is prosperous, prosperous. Ungodly can very financially prosperous. There are a lot of financially prosperous, but ungodly. But there's a lot of financially prosperous godly people as well. So the godly man, blessed is he. And then very in the last three verses, the godless man. He's unconcerned about religion, not zealous for his own salvation. Do not, he's not troubled with praying or reading the Bible. No need for repentance. There basically is no time for God. 
This person leaves God out of his life. It is the, the ungodly that is, by the way, the mildest description of the lost man is that he is ungodly. That's the mildest description. First of all, he is driven. The ungodly are not sober like the chaff which the wind is when driveth away. I never thought about that till I was studying this week. Uh, driveth. The ungodly, we, we, they think that they are ungodly. They've got their life mapped out. They know the end from the beginning. And we are just, we who believe the Bible are just the flyover zone. And they are so far above us. And, and again, this is a minority, but they're just a very, and seemingly uh, the vocal and, and running things minority currently. But they think, but, but he's like the chaff, which the wind driveth away. The ungodly are not so. And they are driven. What, well, driving away, they're lighter than air. They have no normal substance, I put. And it's, it, it's, they, are not, they are driven by their ideology, but they're driven by things. And so often, well, we're doing what we want to do. Well, no, you're really driven by other forces. And page four says, such are the forces that work in the life of the ungodly. They're satanic forces wielded by the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. The unsaved man does not believe in Satan or evil spirits. His education has taught him to believe only in what he can test with his senses. But, are, but there are invisible forces, and the pressure they exert is a secret pressure, and Satan is working overtime, it seems. The unsaved man is not the master of his own soul. He may think he is, but he's not. He's not the captain of his own destiny. He's being relentlessly driven as is a powerless against these forces as the chaff are against the wind he's driven i was thinking about just we've heard the, the, if you've heard listen to anything about the border our own border the horror stories of the human traffickers and how they are they are taunting our own workers our own border patrol with the most heinous of things in my self-righteousness, I wanted to bring Clint Eastwood down there and let him take care of all these people who are taunting with these, I mean, flagrant, horrendous things to humankind and bragging about it. They are driven and they are doomed. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Their judgment is sure. They're going to be summoned to the great white throne. And when that happens, all of what they've held onto is going to be gone. The time of their departure will be at hand. It was Queen Elizabeth of England, 1553-1603. She was the daughter of Henry VIII and his second wife, Anne Boleyn. She brought uh, England back into the forefront, reigned 45 years. She was a great ruler for them, inaugurated the golden age for England. But at the very end, she was 70 years old, and she was propping herself on her throne and holding tightly. And I don't know if it's her very last words or not. She didn't want to leave. Her last words are, all my possessions for a moment of time. All my possessions for a moment of time. How sad that is. And we, I just told someone this week, we get so caught up here, we're going to get to heaven and say, man, why did I want to stay down there? Wow, this is like, woohoo! Why did I want to stay down there? So he's driven, he's doomed, and finally he's damned. Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. I was listening to a podcast just today. He said, when's the last time you heard a pastor get up and say at the very end, say, you know, if you don't know Christ as personal Savior, you're on your way to hell. When's the last time you heard your pastor? He said, if you're, when's it, you, 
And it's true. We, we, we want to shy, most pastors want to shy away from that word, but it's just as true today as it was when I was growing up and when you were growing up. And it'll be just as true today if God, whatever it is, when God takes us home or he waits a while yet. Blessed is the man that does the happy, happy. And you and I, this true today as it was when God wrote the book, Psalm 1, chapter 1. May we turn ourselves away from the world and toward him and enjoy the happiness that comes from a life where he's leading. Let us pray. Lord, what a challenging psalm it is. Wonderful truths. Lord, it's not so much that we don't know what we should do. It's that we just don't want to do it. Sometimes we're just flagrantly disobedient. It's not so hard knowing the will of God, but obeying the will of God. And so Lord, help us to be obedient servants of yours this week. Bless us now as we go our separate ways. In Jesus' name I pray.